Welcome again, everybody. On this um, Father's Day, I had a uh, my Father's Day present yesterday. Actually, I went on a few hour sailing trip with my with Cindy and my son and his wife on the North Chesapeake Bay. We had a great time. Beautiful weather, not some good wind. But the most amazing thing of all was we were in the opening of the Elk River, which comes out from the eastern coast of the the the. Uh, of Maryland there, and somebody said, there are dolphins. And we saw, what, about 30 dolphins. There probably were a lot more, but you know these pictures of the dolphins jumping out? It's exactly what it was, just a stone's throw away from us. It was it was really magnificent. So that's my Father's Day. My Father's Day present from my son and from God, <laughs> both. Where... Um, Coming, and I'm sure many of you are relieved, to the end of John. We've been in John since September, but it, we have interrupted it, so it hasn't been straight through. Um, and we're, we're reading the Gospel of John and, and trying to focus on this um, central thought that if you want to know what God is like, then you need to look at Jesus. There's, there's no other way to know what God is like, who he is, and how he acts. And this week I ran into, uh, I had never not seen this before, but I ran into this quote from Martin Luther. Now, if you quote Martin Luther, you know you're on the right track. He's pretty orthodox, except for some of the things he says. But in general, you quote Martin Luther, he's pretty orthodox. And here's Martin Luther's quote, and I just exited from my notes, so i got to get the back. Martin Luther said this, Stop climbing into heaven... To, to see who or what God is. Hold on to this man, Jesus, and then listen to this. He's the only God we've got. That's Martin Luther. Stop climbing into heaven to see who or what God is. Hold on to this man, Jesus. He's the only God we've got. And that's what we've been trying. I wish I'd found this quote like nine months ago. But that's what we've been trying to do for these, for these, for these last months. And now we're coming to the end of John, um, and it's interesting that the the focus of the last two chapters of John is Jesus meeting with two people, two disciples. There's other stuff going on, but he's meeting with two disciples. One is Thomas, known throughout church history as Doubting Thomas, and then there's Peter, the meeting with Peter, and you remember Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times the night before uh, he was crucified. So we're going to focus a little bit on the on the first on John chapter twenty today, and then finish up John chapter twenty one, which is actually more of a coda. Um, next week we're going to read John twenty verses nineteen to twenty three, and I'd also like to mention that this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I have three that are kind of big favorites of mine. One is Psalm twenty seven. The whole psalm, the Lord is, I won't read the whole thing, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And then the last verse of Psalm 27, I am still confident of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If you don't know Psalm 27, highly recommend it. It's just spectacular. And then another verse that I quote here often, you'll recognize it right away, Colossians in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a foundational, foundational verse for me. And then this passage from John chapter 20. I have other ones, but these are kind of like 
the three on my top hit list. John 20, 19 to 23, and this is, of course, after, this is um, um, the evening of the resurrection. So Jesus has come out of the tomb in the morning, um, and this is the evening of that day. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This event occurs likely, if you remember, a pretty famous story in the end of Luke about the what we call the, the road to Emmaus, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, likely Cleopas and his wife were going to Emmaus. They met Jesus. Uh, Jesus spoke with them. They had supper with him. And when Jesus broke the bread, it says um, they recognized who he was. They rushed back to Jerusalem, and they probably rushed back to this meeting. So there were Jesus' disciples plus other people, including most likely Cleopas and his wife. And Jesus appears. He shows up. Disciples were fearful of the Jews. And you remember we talked about this phrase, the Jews in John, a month or two ago, or maybe longer. And the the disciples are afraid because their lives are on the line, so the doors are locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. I've said this a number of times, certainly as we've gone through John and talked about peace. We've talked about peace before. But this is not a peace that implies that everything in life is going to go swimmingly. If there was anything that Jesus knew, it it was that for these disciples, life was going to be hard. Some of them were going to lose everything, including their lives, as as they were following him. So this peace that Jesus breathes on them that he gives to them is not the promise of a trouble-free life. It's the promise of his being with them. The peace of knowing that Jesus is with us, that God's space has meant our space finally and definitively in Jesus Christ, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And that through any circumstance, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? Am I not going to die anymore? Is the shadow going away? No, you are with me. That's the promise. And it doesn't mean we don't strive to improve our relationships and improve our situations. It doesn't mean we don't do medicine and, and, and all those other things. It doesn't mean we're passive. It means in the final analysis, even when things don't turn out the way we'd like them to turn out, Jesus is with us. And that's the source of peace. And then Jesus breathes on his disciples, or or says to his disciples, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In a very clear way, Jesus is saying to his disciples, and this fits in with our theme, right? If you want to know who God is, Look at Jesus. 
And now Jesus is going to be going away, leaving them. And he's saying, you, my disciples, you, my followers, are now the ones going to be showing God to the world in which you live. It's a super powerful thing that Jesus is saying here. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And I thought of that verse that I'm sure most of you know from John chapter 1, verse 14, the same gospel. The word became flesh, the logos became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. When God showed up in this world, he showed up full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. As Luther said, this is the only God we've got. Grace and truth. And Jesus is calling his disciples, and he's calling on us, to be his hands and feet and ears and eyes in this world and to be people of grace and truth. It's a magnificent calling. And it's one that gives the deepest meaning to life. And it gives ways to think and perhaps even tools to use to get through life in a way that's fruitful and that's loving, and that experiences grace and truth and peace, or as the Old Testament would say it, shalom. Just a wonderful Jesus sending his disciples out. And then he comes to this, Jesus says this sentence to his disciples. Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. Corey talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Any time, really, actually. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, and some of you will be, of course. Jesus says to his disciples, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And we all think, wait a minute, how can this be? What in the world is happening? And this sentence, along with a couple of others in the Gospels, have been used throughout the history of the church to form the basis for what in some circles is called church discipline. You know, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, that when you go to confession, the priest actually has the power to forgive your sins, and that's partly rooted in this, in this verse, among others. We Protestants don't do it that way, but we do have the, the, although we don't practice it very much anymore, this practice of church discipline, which is basically saying to someone, we as a church, in the name of Jesus, forgive your sin, or we don't because you continue in your sin. It's very interesting when you look at this verse a little more because um, the word forgiveness in this verse, which is used two times, 
is rooted in two different Greek words. It's not the same word. The first one, the first time it's for, it's when, when Jesus uses, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiving, they are forgiven them, is worded, rooted in a work, Greek word that means leave. And I don't know how many of you remember the parable that Jesus told about, we call it the wheat and the tares. There was a farmer, he had sown his wheat in the fields, and in the night an enemy came and sowed what the King James calls tares. I don't know what it is in our version, I didn't look it up, but weeds. And those are the kind of weeds that would just swallow up and eat and destroy the wheat. So the farmer wakes up in the morning, and one of his farmhands comes to him and says, Sir, we had this beautiful wheat field, but in the night our enemy came and sowed these um, weeds that will destroy our wheat. And you know what the farmer said to him? Leave them, same word. Or forgive them. Leave them alone. And the word that's used for the other uh, part of this sentence, uh, if you forgive the sins of any, if you leave the sins of any, they are left. If you withhold forgiveness, and the second word means to seize or to hold on to. So you've got two images going on here. One is to leave, to, to let go, and the other is to hold. David Bentley Hart, who translated uh, the New Testament in... Um, 2017, translates this verse this way, and it's very fascinating to leave the word forgiveness out and think about what this verse means. It's a kind of a paradigm shifter. By the way, this is the kind of nerdy part of the sermon, so. For those whose sins you let go, they are let go. Those you hold fast, they have been held fast. And to me, this gives a whole nother feeling to this verse than the feeling of power. Because throughout the centuries, the church has used this verse to exercise power. We have the power to say, you are out and you are in. And if you're in, and do or think what you shouldn't, we can put you out. And we've been doing that for a long time. And we do it lovingly, and we do it prayerfully, and we believe that we really want the best for the other. We really believe that in the long run we are acting in the way that is most beneficial for the good of the other, but still... I don't know how many of you follow church news, but this week there were three churches that gathered together uh, from all around the country in their three different national church meetings. One of them was the biggest church in the United States, I think except for the Catholic Church, and perhaps the biggest denomination in the world, the Southern Baptist Convention. Maybe you heard about them. They got together, I believe, in New Orleans. Thousands and thousands. I think there were 10,000 people there. The group that also got together was one that you should know about, the Christian Reformed Church of North America, Synod, which met in Grand Rapids this week at Calvin, Calvin University. 
And the third group, which when I say the name, you'll recognize it, but it's quite small, the Presbyterian Church in America. They got together this week. So three churches meeting together in this same week. Central to all of those three meetings were two issues. The first one is, how do we as a church relate to the LGBTQ plus community? And the second issue was, what's the role of women in the church? What kind of offices, official positions, pastor, elder, deacon, etc., can women hold? Those were the two issues. Who was controlling the debate in all three meetings and its conditions? White, heterosexual, males. And what was the central theme? Discipline. How do we make sure that those who are among us, but are now not thinking properly, either change their thinking or leave. I mean, literally. And how do we make sure that those who think wrongly or act wrongly are not let in? And it's all on basis of this text and a couple others. And I don't think this text is about church discipline at all. It comes on the heels of Jesus sending his disciples out as he had been sent out. We are called to be the hands, feet, eyes, and ears of Jesus, breaking down barriers, bringing shalom. Holding fast and letting go in this synergy, going through the world. Turning this into a basis for church discipline is an act of seizing power over others, which the church has done chillingly well for the last two millennia. That's not what Jesus did. He never erected barriers. He never sent anyone away. People put up their own barriers, and people left him. But he never did it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we aren't called to care for one another and to disciple one another in ways that might sometimes call for truthful, graceful, and confrontational conversations. I'm not saying that we never deal with the hard things, that we never correct one another, that we don't work with both grace and truth and try to figure that out. But David Fitch, who I mentioned here a number of times before, put it this way. He's talking about leadership, but I think it applies to this. Leadership is not imposing your will on the people under your leadership, nor is it deciding for them what the right answer is and then pointing them to the door if they don't agree. That would be dictatorship. Instead, Christian leadership is listening and discerning with people, allowing the Spirit to work in the gifts and reveal, and then saying, let's walk 
together. And this week I ran across a poem called Bird Wings by the 13th century Persian poet Jalaluddin Rumi. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Here's the poem. It's a poem about grief, so I'm taking a little bit out of context, but I thought that these lines kind of act, give us a feel for what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding, the two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. Jesus is not telling the disciples they can go out into the world and say, you're in and you're out. Jesus is saying, go out in the world and loose, leave, and hold fast. Loose and hold fast in rhythm, together, in community, building this community, building this kingdom of God based on my resurrection, my death, and the peace and Holy Spirit that I give you when I breathe upon you. But on that night, Thomas wasn't there. Thomas didn't see this. Thomas didn't hear any of that. So now we read John starting, picking it up at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, so a week later, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, again, the disciples were afraid. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Thomas has been known throughout history as doubting Thomas, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad way to think of him. But I read somebody this week who suggested that he was more the conditional Thomas. That is, he said, I would believe if, if I see his side, if I see his hands, if I see his feet, I'll believe. I will only believe when certain conditions are met. And maybe that's a challenge for us. I will only believe if it intellectually makes sense. Or I will only believe if I get healed. Or I will only believe and follow Jesus if I'm taken care of. I will only believe and follow Jesus if things go well. I will only believe and follow Jesus if this problem is resolved. I will only believe and follow Jesus if I can find peace or happiness or success. We too approach Jesus often from a conditional, actually a pagan mentality. What's in it for me? 
If I do something for him, will he do something for me? That's the attitude with which Thomas approaches Jesus. And Jesus blows that out of the water. Note in this passage that there's no recording that Thomas actually touched Jesus. You see it in all the paintings, but it's not in the text. I believe, frankly, that he didn't. Jesus just appeared. And he invites him to approach. He he meets Thomas on his terms, but Thomas doesn't do that. There's only one thing he can say when he sees Jesus, and it is my Lord and my God. This total submission to this Jesus, whom Thomas knows lived, died, rose again, is standing in front of him, my Lord and my God. Or in other words, I have finally seen God and I know what he is like. And with this confession of who Jesus is, John closes his gospel, except for the coda that we're going to talk about next week. This is it. Virtually the last word spoken. Thomas the conditionalist. I will believe if. And Jesus appears and Thomas lays down all his weapons and all his conditions and surrenders to this Lord and this God. And then Jesus said, you're blessed because you've seen me and you believe. Blessed are those who are going to come in the centuries and millennia after me who don't see but believe. And how do you believe without seeing Jesus? I think that goes back to the verse we talked about. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You know how I see Jesus? In you guys. Right? In the people around me. In the family. In the fathers. In the community. We pass this on from one generation to another. We tell the stories. We live together in grace and truth. We're not building barriers or walls. We're not throwing people out. We're inviting people in. Saying, this Holy Spirit is in me. Let's share it. And together, let's see Jesus. And let's believe and follow him. On Wednesday evening, I was at a, it was actually a little bit of a, it was a cocktail hour or a party for, um, uh, I volunteer for an organization that advocates for youth in the foster system. And it was a group of about 20, 25, 30 people. It's outside. It's a beautiful day like today. The organization is not a Christian one. I have no idea how many Christians there were there. No idea. There were stories told. Stories told about people who were expending time and energy and money and resources to come alongside of kids who were in the foster system. There was a 27-year-old young lady there who had come through the foster system 
And it had one of these advocates for now 10 years, since she was 16. They had been walking together through life. And this 27-year-old young lady, single mother with two children, told about where she had come from. And this lady that met her along the way, and that they had walked together for so many years. She was now finishing college and taking care of her children and doing the best that she could to give them the resources that they needed to continue on in life in a fruitful and meaningful way. And there I saw Jesus. There he was. In the muck and the mud of a broken foster system rooted in broken homes and broken families and broken people, there is Jesus. No barriers, no walls. There he is. And I believe today, partly because I was there on that night and saw it. And that's a fantastic way to live. And you can see it in the dolphins too. If you have eyes to see, see Jesus, the risen Christ, who gives us his peace. Amen.